Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, this is Paul Edwards, and welcome to Tuesday Topics. Happy birthday, ADA. That's what our topic is tonight. The Americans with Disabilities Act was signed on the 26th of July, 1990, at White House ceremony with a Republican president and a lot of bipartisan support and a number of people with disabilities in attendance. We thought it might make sense to start off proceedings um, by uh, giving everybody who isn't familiar with the Americans with Disabilities Act an idea of what it actually is. And to do that, uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, a gentleman who I have been in awe of ever since I met him in the early 90s. Chris Bell was involved in the preparation of the ADA. Um, He worked with the government for a long time in developing the regulations that implemented the ADA and then was a practicing attorney uh, actually litigating the ADA uh, for a number of years. So he brings to the Americans with Disabilities Act an immense amount of knowledge and experience, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to provide us with a brief overview of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Mr. Christopher Bell from North Carolina. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm good. Good. And and, uh, Claire, I'm glad you're here. We should have fun. So uh, the ADA is divided into uh, four basic sections. And in legal mumble jumble, they call that titles. And the first section deals with employment, and it bars discrimination against people with disabilities who are qualified for a job uh, where the discrimination is based upon their disability. And it also requires where it's needed uh, the provision of a reasonable accommodation unless an employer can show that it is an undue hardship. And the employment title covers employers with 15 or more employees, which actually leaves out quite a few employers. Um, The second section of the ADA, referred to as Title II, covers all state and local governments. Um, And it prohibits discrimination in the programs and activities of state and local governments, which actually is quite varied. For example, building sidewalks and uh, streets as a program or activity of state and local government. So is voting. Um, So are the uh, provision of benefits uh, like uh, Medicaid and uh, food stamps and the like. Um, And then uh, the third section of the ADA uh, prohibits disability discrimination by places of public accommodation. And that's just kind of a fancy legal uh, phrase or places that uh, serve the public, uh, whether it's uh, 
in uh, selling goods and services or renting goods and services or a doctor's office or insurance office or grocery store or whatever. Um, uh, and it also requires, and this a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with, it requires that all commercial facilities, that means all buildings in the United States built new after 1991 for first occupancy in 1992 have to be built to be fully accessible under guidelines established by the U S access board. Um, So that's a pretty amazing thing. It also requires that uh, when a commercial facility alters a space, like it uh, builds a new room or, changes the configuration of a room, that part has to be accessible and it has to have an accessible path of travel from the door to that room uh, subject to a certain cost cap. And finally, it requires existing facilities to make uh, barrier removal under a lower cost standard. Um, the fourth section of the ADA, uh, we're not going to talk much about today, but it was pretty significant and established a nationwide telecommunication relay service that would uh, that enables uh, people who are deaf to contact people who uh, hear uh, via a telephone system with their, where there's a relay operator and vice versa. So a hearing person can call a toll-free number and they get an operator that has a, a TTY machine, I guess it's the old name for it, and uh, the hearing person says, I want to talk to um, Mary Jones. And the, and the operator calls Mary Jones and they communicate um, by TTY typing. And then the operator tells the hearing person what Mary wrote and back and forth. So that made a big difference for, uh, for deaf people. And there's also a fifth section, which is the miscellaneous provisions, which I'm not going to go into. But that's the basic overview. Title five is a very strange title. Um, it, it, and, and, and it reflects, it's, it's interesting to read. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Chris, but, um, it's interesting to read because, um, because th- there are a lot of attitudes that are, that are covered under title five that, that probably wouldn't be held now. And it's, it's, it's interesting how much has changed in a generation. That's true. That's true. So it's been interesting. So Ms. Claire Stanley uh, works in the ACB national office as a, uh, a specialist in advocacy, um, had lots of part to play in our convention and, and, and has been a guest on Tuesday topics before. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, as I, as I suggested in my announcement, when the ADA was passed, Claire had barely been born. Uh, um, I'm I'm not going to um, discuss Claire's age. She'll be happy to know. (laughs) I was born before the ADA. I I promise. I I was, I was two when it passed. (laughs) Yes. So, so here's my question to you, Claire, when did you first become aware of the ADA and, and, and how did it impact your life? You know, I think I didn't really know what the Americans with Disabilities Act was until I was a little bit older. Um, You know, I was very fortunate to have the accommodations that I needed as a child, um, school elsewise. And, 
you know, I don't want to say I took that for granted, but I, I didn't know otherwise. I'd say it was probably in high school when I started getting more involved in the disability advocacy world that I started to learn what the ADA really was and what components it had and what what it said and what it didn't say and that kind of thing. Um, and I remember feeling very um, appreciative and very um, blessed in a way that such a, a law existed that protected my rights as a person with a disability. But yeah, I, I don't think it was till I was in about high school that I really understood what it meant and what the law was and what existed and that it hadn't existed even within my lifetime. To, to give the contrast, uh, I was in first grade in 1957 and my first grade teacher refused to teach me to read because she mm-hmm. thought I didn't see well enough and it would be a waste of time. So my mother taught me to read. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until 1975 that we had uh, the first federal law that required uh, special education and individuals with disabilities uh, um, appropriate appropriate education plans. Uh, so it, the disability rights movement and disability laws have made uh, a big difference from when you start from pretty much zero. And, and, and they started zero pretty late because I think the first real disability related law was, was, was passed in 1968. So it didn't much predate. Act. Yes. It didn't much predate um, the, the, um, the education act of 75. Um, nope. We, we were re- really the new kids on the block. Um, one of the fascinating things for me, because I'm older than all of you guys, I was, I was 21 um, when, uh, when this, the, the civil rights act was passed and it absolutely, yep. Well, <laughs> that's all right. Now nah, I was 19, I guess. But, but the point that I'm, the point that I'm really making is it was an absolute shock to me to find that essentially I wasn't protected by the law. Mm-hmm. Um, it did nothing for me. Um, well, I <laughs> wouldn't have done much for me anyway, because I was in Jamaica and Trinidad, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even so, you know, as, as, as an American who's seeing these guys celebrate it, it occurred to me even then. That, that, that it was amazing that as a person with a disability, um, the, the Civil Rights Act really did nothing for me. Mm-hmm. It, it left me out in the cold. Yeah. So, Chris, in the buildup to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act that you were involved in, what were some of the, the, the political kind of pushes and shoves that had to be dealt with in order to get a law to come out? Well, the first um, version of the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was published by the National Council on the Handicapped in 1986. And uh, it was written by a friend of mine named Bob Berger. And uh, it was referred to laughingly in the disability rights community as the flat in the earth law. Because yeah. it basically said everything had to be accessible, no cost limitations. Yeah, um, and I like uh, that law. Yeah, and that actually uh, the version that was actually introduced in Congress in 1988. And Bob Dole actually signed on to it. I don't think he'd read it, um, but uh, he signed on to it. And then, um, and and the other piece, of course, is that George H. W. Bush. Uh, 
came out in the Republican convention in 1988 calling for an enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that was revolutionary. Uh, And in part, he was able to do that because my boss at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Evan Kemp, who was a disabled person, was was Bush's disability advisor. And he was pushing Bush to do that. So as a result of that, in the 88 election, the Gallup poll did a survey and found that uh, uh, half of Bush's margin of victory over Dukakis uh, was due to basically Democratic disabled voters voting for Bush mm-hmm. because he'd come out in favor of the ADA. Yep. And uh, Evan sent that Gallup poll around to every single member of Congress. You can, you can bet on that. Um, and that really... I do. And, you know, without George Bush, we wouldn't have an ADA. Um, yep. And because he made it very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for Republicans to uh, strongly oppose the ADA because he was president and head of the party. And uh, of course it was a totally different time. There was bipartisan legislation back in the good old days. And the ADA ultimately passed uh, by huge majorities in, in both houses. Yes. Um, the, the biggest problem we had was actually in the house where the speaker of the house, and I'm now blanking his name, his name, first name was Tom and he was from the state of Washington. Uh, but he was a Democrat and he didn't want the, he, he refused to bring the ADA to the floor of the house for a vote. Hmm. And because he thought it was a terrible bill, he thought it would uh, create all kinds of problems for the Democrats. And uh, he didn't oppose, you know, committees working on it or whatnot, but he, uh, he really didn't want it to be voted on. So a bunch of good disability rights folks just, Picketed the heck out of his office in the state of Washington. And uh, his assistant called me and said, what do we do to call off the pigots? Bring the bill to the floor of the house. Uh, you know, brought the floor of the house for a vote and, and passed. There is, there is a, uh, I guess, a widespread feeling, Chris, and I'm going to give you a chance to comment on it, that, the group that got the least out of the Americans with Disabilities Act were blind people. How would you respond to that? Well, um, I think it's partly true, but it's partly because we're such a low incidence disability. Um, we're not, are, are we that much lower in terms of incidence than deaf folks? I'm not sure that we oh, are. Deaf folks is, is huge. Yeah. Oh, I don't know are, about that. Oh yeah. What do you think, Claire? Are, are 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 there gazillions more deaf people than blind people? I I think Chris is right. I feel like the statistics I've heard, at least, I don't know if it's a huge fraction, but the deaf and hard of hearing community is larger, in fact, than the blind and VI community. Yeah, I think it's larger, but I don't think it's. I mean, I I I, I would be absolutely shocked if it were twice as large. Uh, well, okay, we can we can look it up later. Um, yeah. But, but, anyway, but at, any, at any rate, um, let me give you a statistic. Yeah. So in fiscal year, federal fiscal year 2019, which would have ended in September 30, uh, 2019, um, there were uh, 20, let me see what it is. Uh, 24,200 ADA charges filed with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. 24,000, okay? Right. 
Um, and there were 442 charges filed by visually impaired folks. And, which, and to, to translate that into English, this means employment complaints filed under Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. Um, and it, 24,000 cases were, were included, and essentially 2% of them or so um, involved folks who were blind. Right. Um, is that a concern, Claire? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a concern for a couple of reasons, because even though you hear that it's a small number of complaints, you think, oh, maybe people aren't experiencing problems. But no, the, the problem is that people probably don't have the jobs to begin with. So I know, I apologize, I'm not sure what year you said these cases were brought, Chris. 2019. 2019. 2019 Thank you. Yeah, because um, that's the statistic that people bring up over and over again, that even though the ADA is now 30 years old, come Sunday, the unemployment rate of persons with disabilities and specifically the blind community has not improved. And I think in some studies it shows this even wavered up and down. So yeah, even though we've had title one of the ADA to protect our right as employees, uh, as persons with disabilities, um, we, we still aren't being able to get those jobs. So, you know, at, again, at, at first blush, it's, oh, great. People aren't bringing suits. Well, they're not bringing suits because they don't have the jobs to begin with. And well, these aren't suits. First, let me make clear. These are administrative okay. complaints filed with the yeah. EEOC. They're not lawsuits. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, and, and I think part of the reason is blind people as a group do a bad job of complaining. At least I think so. I think um, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that's part of it. Chris, do you think, do you think title one of the ADA has done a lot of good? Well, I can tell you both anecdotally from my, from being in private practice and uh, uh, from the EEOC uh, perspective. um, First of all, if you're talking about hiring, um, hiring is a, is a very small percentage of ADA charges. Um, And there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that when you apply for a job, um, you don't have any sense of entitlement or that you're going to get that job. And you haven't lost anything when you're applying. You haven't been fired. You haven't lost any money. So um, the things that drive uh, litigation are anger and money. And that happens when you get fired because uh, you think you've been probably you think you've been treated unfairly. Uh, you've lost your salary um, and you have still connections in the workplace. So you, you, you know who replaced you. So, and sometimes even you've been required to train that person. Um, and so you have much more uh, animus and, and much more money at stake. And so, that's why you see uh, far more charges filed uh, under uh, discharge than hiring. Right. So, well, so in, fact, in fact, go ahead. Go ahead, Claire. In hiring claims are twelve. There were twelve hundred seventy-five hiring claims uh, of the twenty-four thousand ADA charges in uh, wow. twenty nineteen. And not very many. The and the discharge cases were over fourteen thousand. So over fifty percent were were discharge cases. 
Um, and, and so it's a tiny amount for hiring. Yep. And that's Claire? true for all the, uh, that's true for all of the EEOC's equal employment statutes. It's not unique to the ADA. Yeah. I was just going to say, I would argue that there's probably a, a very small percentage of cases that are brought at the hiring stage too, because no one feels like they have a leg to stand on. Kind of like you were saying, Chris, when you apply for a job, you can be denied a job because you're not qualified or because you have a disability. And when you apply for the job, they're not going to tell you they didn't hire you because you have a disability, even though that might have been the onus on which they said, oh, I'm not, not going to hire her. So a lot of cases aren't brought because people just don't have a leg to stand on to make that argument because you can't say, I know what he or she was thinking. So that makes a, a difficult argument as well. Chris, in terms of Title I, there, there is a kind of a widespread feeling that employers fairly quickly uh, got to the point where because there was no affirmative action, this is what makes this a complex and politically dangerous question, because there was no affirmative action with the ADA, all you had to demonstrate or all you had to do in order to preclude yourself from needing to hire a person with a disability was to require a year or two years of experience in the job. And essentially, you'd throw those folks out of the job market anyway. How would you respond to that? Well, um, two ways. Uh, well, that's true for Title I and the ADA. Um, there was an earlier law called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and it had a section called Section 503 that required affirmative action on the basis of disability for yes. uh, federal contractors who had at the time uh, $10,000 worth of business with the federal government money. The level has since increased, but um, so there were affirmative action requirements for, uh, frankly, the, the larger employers, you know, the Honeywells and the IBMs and the uh, Lockheed Martins and, and whatnot. Um, but the truth is that those larger employers are not the, the predominant employers in the country, the prominent employers and, are small and, employers. And there was no enforcement of that affirmative action either. And, and even two or three years ago, when those laws were rewritten to supposedly make them stronger, they didn't have much impact. You know, I, I, I'm not arguing with you. I just, I don't know. I, I've never tried to analyze it. Interesting. Um, it, when we compare titles, obviously Title II uh, which which dealt with state and local governments had a lot of immediate effects because training happened uh, for employees and all kinds of changes were made in state and local government. And I think there 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 was certainly a feeling for a lot of us that that under Title II a lot should happen, a lot could happen. Um, Claire, do you do you think Title II has, has lived up to our expectations of it? That's a good question. Um, the word expectation, I, I pause because, you know, what are our expectations? Um, I definitely think it's done a lot more than as we were just comparing it to Title I, that it has come a lot farther. Um, for instance, I'll use the, the voting uh, rights issue because we've been talking about that pretty significantly in the national office. 
have we made advancements? Yeah, there's definitely a lot that's happened, but it definitely took a long time. You know, we had to fight for years, even after the ADA was passed in 90, getting accessible voting machines still took a long time. But now we've hit this this new hurdle of absentee voting. So do we have what we need from Title II? I think there was a lot of advancements, but I don't think it's perfect. Um, but that goes back to the whole idea of what our expectations are. I wonder if my expectations from this side of the ADA are different from expectations from the other side of the ADA. Um, Cause I think, yeah, we've there, there's so much we can point to and say, because of title two, we have curb cuts or things like that. But I think still there are so many things that under title two aren't living up to expectations. Um, and I wonder if my expectations are different and more grandiose because I'm on this side of the ADA. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yep. Chris, your thoughts are, are, has it lived up to expectations? Well, I, I think, uh, I think expectations were uh, quite high and often misunderstood. I remember talking to the gentleman that was in charge of the ADA at the U.S. Department of Justice, a, a great guy named John Wodach. And he yes. told me one of the first calls that he got was from a manager at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., wanting to know uh, whether it was true that the, there was a deaf gentleman there and he was demanding uh, the presidential suite um, for free because he was deaf. <coughs> and my of goodness, course, that's only if that works. <laughs> right. Um, so the other thing is that there was a, I think, a, a mistaken, understandable, but mistaken belief that the government uh, was going to uh, do this major enforcement push uh, to make the ADA a reality. And um, the reality is that the, the Congress has never uh, adequately funded civil rights agencies for enforcement. And in fact, the whole reason why in 1990 we got damages uh, added as a potential remedy for race, sex, and national origin violations as well as the ADA was because that nobody could find private employers to bring these lawsuits where the only thing that the, the disabled plaintiff or the person who's black or female could get was back pay. And so they created this damage remedy in the hopes of uh, jumpstarting the willingness of private attorneys to take these cases. Um, but they capped it at $300,000 for the largest right. employers uh, for uh, what are called non-pecuniary damages, punitive damages, yeah. and, and uh, non-out-of-pocket damages. Um, so the other thing is that, um, just to give you a, another statistic, um, in 2019, the ADA filed a total of 55 lawsuits under the ADA. That's all. It was 55 of 144 lawsuits that the EOC filed under all its laws, which is about 38% of them. They're like, well, that's nothing. Okay. So government enforcement was never going to be the big push that people thought it was going to be. And it's just, a tiny drop in the bucket where we've so, really made gains is in uh, website accessibility claims. 
under Title III. And that's where we're really rocking and rolling the, uh, the business community. Um, so, so let's talk about Title III. Um, I, think, I think you believe that, that, that it may be the most seminal title in the ADA. And um, tell, us, tell us a little bit first why. And then, and then if you would, tell us what you think have been the benefits over the last 30 years. Okay. Um, well, first of all, there's a context piece we haven't talked about, which is that for the first 20 years of the law, the United States Supreme Court defined disability extremely narrowly. In fact, over time, it, 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 made, it, all, it made it almost impossible to, to win like an ADA employment claim. Employers yes. are winning 95% plus of the employment ADA claims uh, even b- before trial because either the person didn't show they were disabled enough or in order to meet that standard, they had to show they were so disabled that they weren't qualified for the job. So it wasn't until uh, George W. Bush uh, signed the Americans with Disabilities Amendments Act in uh, 2008, which took took effect on January 1, 2009, that the definition was really broadened so that you could actually get to the merits of a discrimination claim, whether you were qualified for a job and denied accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. So the first 20 years, uh, there wasn't a hell of a lot of progress from a, from a legal enforcement standpoint. Um, so uh, setting that issue aside, um, the reason I think the Title III is uh, probably the most effective is because uh, it covers all commercial buildings, bar, bar none. So, um, as I said in my, my summary, new commercial buildings have to be built to be accessible under existing architectural standards. Altered spaces have to be altered to be accessible, and even existing facilities have some obligation for barrier removal. So, from a sheer scope standpoint, um, it's a much broader title. Um, it doesn't cover all public accommodations. There are things that are left out. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, the White House and the Bush administration were negotiating over the, the scope of Title III, and, and disability community wanted a broad scope, but they also wanted a damages remedy. And the White House said, if you want damages, you can only have the remedy that was available under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, which only covered about three different types of facilities. So, um, they, they struck a bargain and the call went out to the disability community, come up with a list of public accommodations. You have 20 minutes, right? So I sat down with the yellow pages in my office at EEOC and I started flipping through <laughs> categories on the yellow pages <laughs> to try to come up with as broad, as broad of a list as I could. And I was the only one person doing that. But the point is that, you know, you, you think of laws as being, you know, considered to one that this whole, the, the list of public accommodations in the, in the accommodations title was, was just cut done in half an hour. Um, and, and it's an arbitrary list. It really is. Well, it is. Yeah. And it had to be given the time we had to put it together. I don't know how I feel about that when I've heard talk, I've done so much training of all the different sections and to know you guys sat down in a half an hour and pounded those out. That I changed <laughs> it's my perspective. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't know about legislation. Like I said, it's pretty ugly to watch. It's like making sausage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, we've, we've, we've talked about the three major titles, um, at, at least uh, to a degree. Um, before we open it up to questions, Claire, any, any last thoughts before we open it up? Uh, yeah, I guess my one thought, um, I just wanted to go based off of what Chris was saying with the litigation we're seeing in the website space. Um, and I personally find that a very interesting world because I like to think that if the internet was what it is today, 30 years ago, would things be different? I like to think that it would have been baked in to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but maybe it wouldn't, but maybe it would um, because it's such a, a different frontier where most of us easily argue that it's c- totally implied through Title II or Title Three of the ADA, but it's, it's not brick and mortar. It's different. And so different courts have ruled in different ways and there's no hard and fast rule, you know, Department of Justice has made on more than one account a statement saying, yes, it, the ADA does cover websites, but it's still not a, a done deal. It's still argued. And so I think that's kind of the, the great new frontier. Um, and so, like right. you said, because of that, Chris, there's a whole lot of litigation. Yeah, there's uh, the, the, the law firm in Sacramento that estimated in 2018, There'd be a, there were over 11,000 uh, website accessibility cases filed in federal court. Wow. And I, I, and, and I would argue that, that while, while what Chris is saying may be true, and we may have gained something in terms of Internet access, I, I, I would argue that, that we, we made some pretty seminal statements in 2010 when the Department of Justice asked for um, ask for comments uh, on 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 a on a pretty broadly interpreted notion of internet coverage, and essentially those have been ignored for the last decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know we essentially, it seems to me at least in 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 terms of having protection against inaccessible websites that aren't directly related to brick and mortar, we're we're still a, a long way up the road and have an awfully long way to go. It seems to me. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good evening, Paul and Claire and Chris. It's Mitch Pomerantz. Hey, Mitch. Well, I wondered if you'd call in, Mr. Pomerantz. Oh, absolutely. I've got a couple of observations and a a quick story. Uh, In 19... Well, first of all, those of us who were involved in advocacy um, when the ADA was first prepared, first drafted, first out... Uh, for for discussion, I think a lot of us, Chris, um, did expect that we would have more um, discrimination complaints, more Title One complaints filed by folks who were trying to to get jobs. And you cited, I think, a very relevant statistic, but a lot of us really expected that there would be more complaints filed by folks who got turned down for jobs. My second observation, Chris, is in April of 89, I was invited to a party at your boss's home. I was there I was there for the President's Committee on Employment of, well, what later became People with Disabilities, and then it went away, but Evan Kemp and several of us were sitting around and 
and maybe I don't know whether Evan drank or not, but he was very honest. Um, he said that he was very concerned about the ADA being too broad, being too inclusionary. Politically, it had to be done to get everyone's buy-in. But he was very concerned that the folks like us, like himself, uh, Evan uh, had cerebral palsy for those who, who didn't know. Um, Evan was very concerned that because of its, its, its breadth and scope regarding disability and the definition thereof, that it wouldn't help as much those of us with severe disabilities. And, um, you know, I became the ADA compliance officer for the city of Los Angeles in 95. And I think a lot of us uh, kind of had that feeling that, in fact, um, it was it was broad to the point that people who we might not otherwise consider as having a a disability <laughs> were were being helped more than those of us with with pretty apparent disabilities. My my final comment, and I guess I feel that that the ADA has been a mixed bag for for us. I think overall it's it's been beneficial. But in 1974, when I first applied to go to work for the city of Los Angeles, it took me a year to convince um, the personnel department that I should even be tested because at the time uh, there was a requirement that regardless of the job you were applying for, whether it required driving or not, uh, you had to have a driver's license. And it took me over a year pre-ADA to, uh, to convince the powers that, that be to, uh, to even test me. And thankfully, I was hired by a gentleman who had experience with blind people and was, was not afraid to, to have a blind people on his staff. Compare that to my last almost 14 years with, with the city as, as our ADA compliance officer. Um, I oversaw a fund of money to provide accommodations for employees, um, newly hired and otherwise, to provide them with accommodations uh, to allow them to work and be accommodated with their disabilities. And I, th I think that in and of itself shows that, that we've made significant progress, although I think we still have a very long way to go. Uh, I think we're still hampered, particularly persons who are blind and visually impaired, were hampered by the myths and stereotypes about blindness, the fear around blindness, and 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 that has changed. On I fear very very little in the last four or five decades. Uh, some perhaps, but not as much. So those are my uh, those are my comments regarding uh, regarding the ADA. So well, on, thanks, on on balance, you think it was worthwhile, Mr. Mitch? Yes, sir. Yes, I do. Uh, Chris, you were going to say. Um, you're right that Evan Kemp was very concerned about the breadth of the definition. He he came out, he got there from personal experience. He sued the federal government as an employee, and this he was a quadriplegic. Okay, and and he said they deposed him for two days as to whether or not he was disabled, and um, he, he was he was really ticked off about that. So yeah, he 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 in part was responsible for the fairly narrow definition of disability originally in in the law before it was amended in in, in 2010. 
um, because he felt strongly that there were people would just be cherry picked who was, weren't really disabled. Um, and and it uh, continued after his um, after his retirement from the city to be an ADA consultant. So he's one of the folks in ADA who probably knows as much about the ADA as most of us do. Well, I, and when Chris was talking about, about the lack of cases, and I've got to be careful here, um, I do work as a, as a consultant with a, with a woman up in Northern California. And, and one of our thankfully now former clients uh, was under a, uh, a settlement agreement that went back at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, it was it was a small county, and and they basically were were fighting this all the way, um, and it was clear when we when we finally uh, were able to to disconnect that that they were they were not going to to comply to the extent that that they were required to, and the sad thing is that uh, the Department of Justice under the current administration um, could care less about requiring government entities to, to, uh, to comply with, right. with, with settlement agreements, consent decrees, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the biggest concerns that I have about the ADA now is, I, and, and I'm not throwing stones at the Department of Justice or, or the current administration, but there has been a huge step back um, in, in the degree to which even large urban entities like the one I live in, Miami, um, are, are feeling compelled to do what they know they are supposed to do with regard to the ADA. Because the, 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 the truth is, I think they know that at the federal level, nobody's going to slap their hands. <laughs> It's it's a long ways even from uh, Chris when you and I went to meet with the uh, the brand new at the time uh, um, head of the disability rights section. When was that? Back in two thousand eight or nine? Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, things things are a lot different now. They are. Thank you so much, Mitch. We appreciate yes. it. Yep. Take care. Yep. Thank you. you. Too. Great. Go on. Yeah, next up we've got phone number 4543. Uh, this is Penny Moss. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I have several comments. I'll try to be quick, but there's several things. I grew up in, um, back in the 50s, I was mainstreamed in public school in the 60s, uh, long before we had the um, public law uh whatever that is, 942 and 75, I was in college by then, and I thought, what do we need a law for? I've already been through public school. But anyway, uh, and then I saw the ADA happen, and I could tell a difference in the way uh, I have two master's degrees. I have one in social work and one in counseling. And um, when I was trying to do my social work practicum, um, the professor almost uh, flunked me out of uh, the program because she thought I was being too demanding because I wanted a place to put my typewriter and my opticon and my braille writer where I was working and thought that was too demanding and there was no such thing as accommodations. But then when I went back 10 years later to get my master's in counseling, I had no problem 
getting a place to put my equipment so I could do my work. So that's a big difference in the ADA, which has been wonderful. The thing I yep. see now that concerns me is, like y'all, I think two things. Y'all were saying earlier that a lot of blind people don't complain. I've been involved in two situations in two different jobs I had, one in an independent living center and one at a state agency where I was in a hostile work environment and I had to file a complaint. And I'll tell you what, it is the most horrible, horrendous thing to have to do when you're in an atmosphere that is hostile and you're not getting the accommodations you need and you know you're not getting them and other people are. And it's a really frightening thing to go through. And it, even if you're right and you win, it can really affect the atmosphere that you work in. And I think blind people generally are afraid of that. And I also think they really don't know how to file a complaint and what to do. Because I know when I filed with EEOC for the first time, it was so overwhelming for me. I couldn't get all the documentation together and... and they dismissed the case, and I probably would have won if I'd pushed harder, but it was just really daunting, and I think that's a problem. The other thing I want to ask about, um, and I'll hush, which title covers doctor's offices? Is that Title Three? Yes. yes. Well, one thing I have noticed, I've, I've lived alone for many years, and you know, I used to be able to take a cab and go to the doctor and get the services I needed and leave. But now it's a lot harder to go by yourself because they, it's like they expect you to bring someone and they don't feel like they need to accommodate you. Some of them, you know, they have those computerized things now you have to fill mm-hmm. out and, and what do you call those things? Um, like a kiosk. Doc, you know, and... Their attitude I, is iPad well, that, that they helper? want you to sign. Yep. Right. Where's your helper? And they don't know that they're supposed to be accommodating with ADA. And I've been in a rehab facility where I was recovering from knee replacement surgery, and I went through the same kind of thing. And I just think, as far as the ADA, we've got some work to do in helping people understand how to file complaints working with doctors' offices, and I think transportation, that needs to be looked at uh, because of the fact that paratransit is so limiting for blind people and getting where you need to get is, you know, far from the Transportation Committee. So I know I've covered a lot. I've said a lot real quick. You have. Y'all, hush. Y'all can comment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, yeah, I, you know, I would Blair? like to comment. I'd love to comment on one of that last points you just made, Penny, about getting accommodations when you go to the doctor's office, for instance. And that's something that I've thought a lot about before. We have those the right for those kinds of accommodations, but I'm going to use the word amorphous. It's a little bit more amorphous to ask for something like having someone read you paperwork or guide you into the doctor's office. And Amorphous might not be the right word, but that's it's, it's less concrete than you must install a ramp, period. And so for people with uh, physical disabilities, the accommodations are 
not always, but in a lot of situations, more concrete um, because they they literally deal with concrete, no pun intended. Um, so they're installing curbs or elevators or those things, but accommodations like helping someone fill out paperwork or guiding them to the back of the doctor's office, those are I don't think difficult, but they're not quite as chiseled into stone in a way that I think people would like. And I think because of that, sometimes those kinds of accommodations are less enforced because people just don't think about them or they're not as, I don't know if obvious is the right word, but that's something I found where we have these rights, but people just kind of toss them aside because it's not as obvious as just installing an elevator. It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it takes a little bit more thinking power. But the, I think but the we problem, would all agree, the, though, yeah. wouldn't we, that 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 what Penny is saying about a doctor's office is correct. I mean, she does have the right to expect the things that she's oh, asking for. Oh, of course. Yes. No, I'm not saying that we shouldn't expect them. I'm just saying from my experience, I feel like that's right. why they tend to be forgotten it, or right. not enforced as much. Well, Chris, one of the I interrupted problems you. The, Go ahead. Yeah, one of the problems with the ADA, in a sense is it, it, it is based upon uh, an assumption, uh, it's an implicit assumption, but it's nonetheless there, that people with disabilities will be good self-advocates. Um, right. and, and that the primary reason why people with disabilities uh, don't get equal opportunity throughout society is for discrimination. Well, I'm not going to argue that one way or the other, but I will say that it's very hard to be a good self-advocate. Um, and particularly when you're faced with, um, you know, obstinacy, um, I can be quite a jerk in a doctor's office. And, you know, if somebody says, well, isn't there somebody to help you for that? I say, no, you're going to, mm-hmm. and you're going to, exactly. and you're going to do it in a private room because I don't want other people to hear about it. So let's go. And, yep. you know, I don't care whether exactly. she thinks I'm rude, um, yep. but, you know, I went to, I went to law school and, you know, first course in law school is how to be a jerk. So yep. <laughs> it's been very helpful. Um, but, you know, that sometimes that's what you have to do. And that's very hard for most people to do. Chris, how do you respond to, to her concern about how difficult it is if you decide that you need to file a complaint and continue to have to work in that environment? Well, it's very true. I mean, uh, talk to anybody that's filed a complaint in, against uh, a, a supervisor or a manager, whether they're in employee context or other context, you know, it, yeah, it's illegal to retaliate. Um, and there are a fair amount of charges related to retaliation. But um, yeah, I mean, people, people don't like it when you complain and they really don't like it when you complain outside uh, the agency like to the government and their bosses don't like it um, because it makes them look bad. So yeah, it's, yep. it's incredibly hard. You, there's no question about it. They, you often have to put up with a, a lot of grief and a lot of people, uh, you know, just even if they file a complaint, they might withdraw it because it's just not worth it to them. Yes, sir. We have Melanie Brunson. Yes, Melanie. Hey, Hello Melanie. there. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, this is this is a, a great subject, and I I have um, I have sat here having thinking a lot of different things um, because this was um, this was my life for a number of years, and I guess first off I want to comment on what 
um, what Chris and uh, and Penny were just talking about, because I, I agree that I think of all the titles of the ADA that it have had the biggest impact, Title Three has probably had the most impact, um, in positive impact for for blind people. But having said that, I think that's also not been without some problems. And one of the biggest problems is I think that um, in the ADA, there are a number of instances where the there are examples. Um, so, you know, what happens when you put, and I, I'm sure sure Chris will comment on this. One of the things that happens when you put examples in any legislation mm-hmm. is that then those become the the end as well as the beginning. They become all you need to do. So I could not count the number of times that I have heard people say, well, I thought the ADA just had to do with wheelchair ramps. Because for them, that was the most visible thing. I mean, when we used to work with traffic engineers, we got that all the time. What do you mean the ADA says that you need to put in accessible signals? All I understood it meant was that we had to put in wheelchair ramps. So because those were the things that, you know, was specifically mentioned and accessible pedestrian signals weren't. So it never occurs to them. And now part of that's, I'm sure, in many cases, bias. But I think, you know, we, it, it, it's even bigger problem in the other titles of the document than it is in Title Three, And it's a big enough problem in Title Three. the whole, you know, issue of the iPads for signing into doctor's offices is a perfect example or the, the print paper. No one ever told me specifically, where in the ADA does it say I have to do this? Is, is not an uncommon question. Um, you know, so, so I think that you're right in saying we have a long way to go. And I, I, I could I could go on about, you guys reminded me of a whole bunch of things, Claire, talking about voting. When we were working on trying to get accessible voting machines, frankly, I don't think the ADA was nearly as much help in that effort as there was in, uh, as the Amer- Help America Vote Act was, which right. passed in the early 2000s. And it specifically mentioned um, accessible voting machines. Yeah. That was where it said every polling place shall have at least one that people with disabilities can use independently. But before that, it was like pulling tapes to get anybody to do anything. So, Melanie, so, whose who's fault? is is the failure for people to understand these things is it is it blind people's fault is it organizations of the blind's fault or 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 is it just it inherent in the way life is well i think it's probably largely inherent in the way life is and specifically legislative life because people always do that you know whatever is cited as an example is always you know the, that means that's all i have to do unless yeah. you can prove to me otherwise but i think that on the other hand 
That is one area where disability advocacy groups in general have fallen down. Because to, to be perfectly honest, some of the time we spend so much time arguing with each other that we forget how to coalesce and and argue um, for our our rights as uh, as people with disabilities as a whole um, to the to the general public. So we don't do enough. I mean, I, we do a lot of public education, but I sometimes wonder if our message is partly getting across because we we have too much internal strife going on that kind of interferes with the public's ability to get the message. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Miss Melanie. Claire or Chris? Comments? Oh, well, I just wanted to make the point, Melanie. Um, it's very simple, but you talked about, um, you know, except the idea of accessibility often goes toward curb cuts. Well, if you think about it, for those who don't know, the accessible symbol, the universal accessible symbol actually has a wheelchair, a figure Mm -hmm. image of a person in a wheelchair. Well, right right. there. I I love my brothers and sisters in the physical disability space, but why is it their sign? Why, you know, why don't we have somebody with a white cane? So right there without even meaning to, your brain instantly goes towards people with physical disabilities. So I think right there, it's just you know, unconscious bias. Good point. Chris, any, any comments? Well, I just think the, the whole issue of, of accommodations, uh, you know, if you didn't give any examples, then people would still be saying the same thing. Well, I don't see where it's required. Um, and uh, I think the reality is that what accommodations uh, whether in employment or, or otherwise is, is such the, the possibilities are so vast and, and, and broader as technology expands that there's no way um, that uh, we can train um, people in doctor's offices, for example, uh, on, on all the different effects of different equipment that frankly was never even thought of when the ADA was written. Right. Um, and so I, I think one of the reasons it frustrates young people who are advocates is they say, geez, I got, I got to keep educating people. When is this going to end? And the answer is never. Right. We always have to keep educating because there are always going to be new folks that are coming up who don't know squat. And it's only us that are going to tell them. So an approach that's been, sorry, go ahead, Claire. Oh, I was just going to say, as as a member of the younger generation, I completely respect and understand that and completely agree that as people with disabilities, that is just kind of our lifelong responsibility to be advocates. But I'll push back a little bit because I think sometimes it, it can be exhausting that the onus is always on us to advocate. And I'll give, it's kind of a silly hyperbolic example, but um, a couple years ago, I came down with a horrible infection and I had to go to the hospital in a, in an ambulance. And I'm, so I'm, I'm getting into the ambulance and I have my guide dog with me and they start going, do we have to take the guide dog? 
I don't, what do we do? And they, they seemed like they were about to deny me access to an ambulance because I had a guide dog. And usually I would put a smile on my face and put on my self-advocate hat and say, no, let me tell you about the Americans with Disabilities Act. But I was in the worst pain I had been in in so long. And so it was just a perfect example of I have to be a self-advocate when I'm in horrible pain. And so I just kind of tell people that story sometimes as it can be exhausting when you have to be a self-advocate, even in some of the most difficult situations. It, it, it is exhausting, but it's it's no different from the, when the electric company says you didn't pay your bill and you know damn well you did pay it. You know, you, you got you got to come and convince them that, no, I've got this canceled check. I did pay it. I mean, that's just it's just life. Um, and life is exhausting. I agree with you. And it's unfortunate that it happens, but I don't know any solution to it other than do, being self-advocate and, and not just in disability, but otherwise. The approach we've taken with the ADA has been gradualist. So we get accessible pedestrian signals and then we move on to the next little tiny accommodation that society makes to us. To, to what degree, and, 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 and I'll ask both of you this question, to what degree is that at odds with the whole notion of civil rights? Because surely civil rights says that we ought to have a right to all of it and that it, and it shouldn't be a question of having to take one crumb after another, one crumb, I'll learn to speak after another, but, but instead we should start from the other end of the spectrum, that we have the right to everything and it's just a question of time and working out how we get to those rights. Really? <laughs> you want me to respond to that? <laughs> I, could, I, 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 I could, uh, well, I can say a number of things, but uh, I mean, I, who defines everything? I mean, I don't know what the hell everything is. And, and it, it's going to turn out that you can get in a room with, with five people and nobody's going to define everything the same way. And not only will they not define it the same way, they're going to argue about it. So it, it just, it just, people don't work that way. And but, certainly legislation doesn't work that way. But, but, but doesn't, doesn't civil rights mean civil rights mean civil rights? No, no. no. It, I mean, it, so it look, means every, just, every we're, civil we're, rights laws, every civil rights law has limitations. You know, when title, when title seven was passed, um, you couldn't even go to court. I mean, all these laws are incremental. Look at Social yeah, Security. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have disability benefits. We didn't have Medicare. We didn't have Medicaid. All those things were added later. I mean, that's yeah. just the way things evolve. And hopefully they evolve in a better direction than a worse direction because things can evolve, evolve in a worse direction, too, which I think we were seeing. I suppose they could. Claire, do you want to comment on, on, on my, my supposed ideas here? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know if this is going exactly to the question you were answering, but the the argument I've heard and, and put so eloquently before is that disability rights under the ADA are unlike a lot of other rights under other civil rights laws because you only have that right up to a point before things like the undue hardship or undue burden um, argument come in, fundamental alteration, et cetera, et cetera. So if, you know, and I, I can't speak for all civil rights cases, but if you're African African-American and you bring a suit in a certain situation, they're not going to make an argument necessarily. Again, I can't speak for everything, but oh, it too, costs too much money, so you can't have it. So because of that, the ADA and those rights are different. And I, on a logical perspective, I completely understand why at a certain amount, a certain point, a dollar amount can come in. But if we're just being theoretical, 
that kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, why is it that my civil rights come with a, a dollar limit on them, unlike other people? Um, so it does make our rights in that respect um, kind of different compared to other civil rights laws. Well, I think there are a lot of limitations in other civil rights laws. I talked earlier about the the back pay limitation and then the limitations in in damages under under Title VII. Um, Under religious reasonable accommodation under Title VII, uh, there's an undue uh, hardship uh, limitation. There are limitations in relief. I mean, it's not you don't necessarily know this unless you get into the, in the weeds of employment discrimination. But if if you win a failure to hire uh, lawsuit, um, it's not a, it's not a done deal to say that the person they hired has to be fired. All right, then you get their job. No, not necessarily true at all. All right, so there are all kinds of limitations in, in relief that we don't know about. So we don't think they exist. And we think, you know, we're unique. Um, in part, we are unique in one sense that traditional civil rights law says just treat everybody the same way and you won't discriminate, which means if you're a jerk to all your employees, it's not discrimination, right? <laughs> as long as you don't single them out for, you know, for women or African-Americans or whatever, if you're just a jerk, then that's lawful. Okay. ADA comes along and says, you know what? Treat everybody alike, except when you need to treat some people differently. And, and that is a huge paradigm shift. And as I like to put it, it's very hard to write a law that prohibits discrimination against disability, but permits discrimination based on ability. Right. Um, Because they're two sides of the same coin and it's very hard to do. Good point. Rick? Yeah, Wesley Brown, you're up, Wes. Yes, I have two questions. Kristen, one is, whenever I go into a building or facility, you know, whatever, always find a nice wheelchair ramps on the door, the push buttons to open the door, you know, if they have pools or spots, have those chairs to sit in that swing over the pool or spa and lower you nice and easy into the water. But when they have anything with a screen, like a kiosk, a terminal, or what have they, there is no screen reader, no screen magnification, no nothing on that screen device. And if there's and some of these devices, they have little handicap, little wheelchair handicap buttons. But all those do is like move the icons around so you can reach it from the wheelchair. No screen reading, no magnification. Why in the heck? Why in the explicitive? Does the ADA fall flat on its face when it comes to, like, screens? Well, who who wants to start that? Chris? Well, part of it, that whole screen stuff, um, you know, that's relatively weird. That that didn't exist when the ADA was passed, for one thing. Uh, And for another thing, you're right. You're right that physical structural access for people who use wheelchairs – was always a bigger deal than access for blind people. I mean, Melanie mentioned accessible pedestrian signals. Well, accessible pedestrian signals are not required in the ADA. Curve ramps are. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, no, we haven't, we haven't gotten the same degree of rights. And partly, we, we didn't have the same political clout um, as blind people, uh, as, as people who use wheelchairs. So I can tell you a lot of stories about advocates for people who use wheelchairs, including like ADAPT, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. chained themselves to buses at the American Public Transit Association meetings every year because their buses weren't accessible. I mean, there, there was a lot of, of 
uh, really strong protest movements that as blind people, we just don't do. I think we, frankly, I think we have uh, NFB post-traumatic syndrome. Uh, I, I think we could be a lot more aggressive uh, than we are. And I think we ought to be out there picketing and, and all kinds of stuff, but I'm in the minority view on that. Yeah. Claire, do you want to talk about kiosks? Um, no, I, I, I was going to say similar to what Chris said. I think the biggest issue um, is that screens weren't what they were. Screens aren't what they were now in 1990. So I like to think, you know, the most optimistic person that I am, uh, that if screens were what they were in 1990, that things would look differently. Um, but it's a new, new horizon, which then putting on my pessimistic hat, what are we going to have in another 20 years that's not going to fit under what the ADA looks like now? That's the difficult thing, like um, has been said by multiple people. We tend to like to look at what's put in as examples as hard law instead of understanding that the law gives ideas that can then be applied in different situations as things evolve. Um, but we're really bad at that and things change so rapidly. So again, knock on wood, we'll see what we have in 20 years and how that impacts the, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, you see what we have in 20 years. I'm not sure I'll be around, but that's okay. <laughs> have a good life. Come on. Come on, you're just a kid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rick? Yes, phone number 9833, please. It's Alice, and a couple of comments and then a question. First of all, I didn't go to law school, Chris, but I'm a jerk. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm kind of like Mitch. I think it's been a mixed bag, but like him, I started employment, gosh, now I'm telling my age, pre-ADA, and I remember the first job interview. Of course, you know, the Rehab Act was around, and the first job yeah. interview I went on was for an unwed mother's home. And they said, well, we just don't know how you can do this job because you got to go up and downstairs and you might fall. And my response was, well, um, I think you'd be more concerned about those mothers that can't see their feet falling down the stairs than me, but okay. <laughs> and the second thing I, I, I would like to comment and say is, and I think Melanie made a good point too, is sometimes we're our own worst enemies because we fight amongst ourselves. And I remember when my significant other, when he went into the vending program and it was the state agency told him he'd have to cage his dog, that he couldn't have his dog with him. And even the other blind vendors were in agreement. And he, I mean, that's who we had to fight literally to be able yes. to, for him to use his guide dog. So yes. it becomes an issue. And my final thing is, which will lead to my question is, I think a lot of people, um, especially in the blind community, at first, when you go to file a complaint, even the Department of Justice website was not accessible for screen readers. It had lots of clunks, and, and I think that that um, caused an issue. But I think the other thing is, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, I think the other reason is, and I've heard this from some of my friends because they were always complaining like in Indiana about their transportation, and I kept telling them file complaints with DOJ and D DOT, um, and th they did, and then their response when I hear them complaining again, I said, well, did you do what I suggested you do? And they said, well, yeah, it didn't do us any good. We never heard anything, and, and, and that's not just with them, but I hear that a lot from people is I filed this complaint, but I never got any feedback. I never heard anything, and so I think people are just get frustrated, so. So I'll shut up now and listen. Chris, any thoughts? 
Sure. I mean, part of it goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is Congress doesn't fund enforcement agencies adequately. So um, I don't remember the, the statistics uh, at EEOC when I was there, but it was like, you know, there were 90,000 charges and, you know, there were, you know, 600 charges per invest. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it takes a huge amount of time. It, uh, by law, we were supposed to do a charge processing in 180 days. And, you know, that never happened. Um, and, and even at the Department of Justice, when I, when I used to file complaints, I'd say, okay, when are you guys going to get to this? And so, well, it'll take 90 days to assign an attorney just to see if what you've written actually, if it were true, says a violation. And after that, we'll put it in the hopper and we'll see. You know, so, yeah, people, ex- people reasonably expect, um, you know, rational treatment and a you know, reasonable response. But you don't get it because Congress doesn't appropriate the money to provide it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give a I'll give a Claire, story. I'll give a story. I um, when I was an undergrad, I had an internship with the disability rights section of DOJ and I worked there in the winter and then was invited back during the summer. And I was working on a few. We called them matters. They weren't cases. I was working on a few matters at the time. Uh, and so then I, you know, gave my files back when I ended in the winter and came back in the summer and they said, Oh, here are the same, same ones. We haven't gone anywhere with them. You can keep working on them. (laughs) So this is kind of perfect example of bureaucracy moves slowly. And that was even during the Obama administration and things still, it's just that bureaucracy where things just chug very slowly. Obama was, was actually worse than some others. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I happen to like, the Obama administration for some things, but in disability things, it was not good. I, I couldn't agree more. Mr. Rick. Yes. Phone number 6821, please. Hi, this is Margie Donovan from California. Hey, Margie. Hey, Margie. Thank you. Great program. I'm loving it. And it's a little disappointing, however. <laughs> um, I want to talk about a couple of things. You know, we spent many, many years getting um, ATMs to be accessible via speech. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm about to in- engage in litigation against Wells Fargo. Once again, they refuse to turn up the volume. They are, uh, they are calling it a safety issue. I've taken them across the parking lot to the um, Golden One, in which is my credit union, they hear the volume difference. Um, in Targets now, we spent all these years on point of sales machines, and in Targets, they're going back to flat screens. And it feels to me like, you know, we take two steps forward and one back with mm-hmm. the ADA so many times. And when we were fighting these agencies or litigating these agencies, you know, we go from one bank to the next and it doesn't set much of a precedent. You still have to start from beginning. Same thing with all the stores and the POSs. And my, my, sometimes I just feel like I want to roll up into my cocoon and go away and not fight anymore. But um, my biggest thing uh, that I, I haven't heard anybody address is the, um, or what are they called? The, the software that doctors are using that uh, patient, patient portals. That's mm-hmm. totally inaccessible, but you're supposed to um, request appointments. You're supposed to request refills through it. Well, fortunately, I got, I had to sign a waiver, but we're doing it via email with my PCP. But all my other doctors, it's a problem. And what's next on that front? Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, that, that, that's an issue. Although I will say that, that um, my doctors in, in North Carolina use a, a system that is fully accessible. 
uh, for making appointments and ordering refills and everything. So those systems exist. Um, and they're fairly, and I had one in Minnesota too. So it, it you know, but yeah, it, it's, it tiresome fighting. And, and when, when you get something accessible and then they go back and do it the old inaccessible way, I guarantee you that if you looked, you'd find there was a change in, in staffing, a change in management mm-hmm. that they just, you know, really? Oh, I didn't know about that. So, know? so, so let me ask a devil's advocate question. A patient portal is, is, is a direct internet relationship between your doctor and yourself. But because the doctor's office is brick and mortar, is a patient portal covered by the ADA? Well, that's a good question. It depends what circuit you're in. It depends <laughs> where you live and what, what country yeah. you're in. I mean, the answer in, in California in the Ninth Circuit is, yeah, Absolutely. Um, but uh, I haven't looked at all the circuits recently, but it's not yep. true everywhere. Yeah. Claire, did you want to add anything to, to, to Margie's points? Uh, I guess my just one point to Margie would be reach out to the national office with those Margie, because we're hearing more and more about those. And like Chris said, it's kind of hit or miss. Some work great. Some don't. Some work great one day and then they update their software and suddenly it doesn't work again. Um, so we're trying to keep track of those. So um, if nothing else, please reach out and let us know because we're trying to keep track of what's being used out there because there are some major companies that are starting to flood the system and own large shares of those services. And so as they become the dominant providers, that becomes an even bigger problem. So we definitely want to know. Rick. Uh, and, and I would say that, the, you know, Sorry. unfortunately the reality is we need to lower our expectations to say, you know, yeah, I, instead of saying, yeah, I fixed it. Why the hell should I have to go back and fix it again? For God's sake. The reality is we do. And we always will because there'll be always new people that won't have any clue. And we need to lower our expectations and just accept that that's, that's a reality. It's actually, it's actually Sue Crawford. Good evening, hey, everybody. Sue. This is a really good conversation. So, so I just like to make a couple of comments. One is when we talk about how discouraged we are right now, I would just like to point out that people pretty much in all protected status groups are feeling pretty beaten up currently. Mm -hmm. I mean, discrimination is pretty popular these days. And there aren't a lot of champions around to to fix everything. But more importantly, I want to point out that it's true that that the rules about uh, concrete access and everything, they're very specific, and it's there in black and white. At the same time, those, those fixes are very expensive. Whereas a lot of the accessibility features that people with disabilities who are blind or visually impaired want are not expensive. And it comes under, I'm telling you specifically, effective communication and reasonable modifications. Reasonable accommodations is only in employment. That's only in Title I. Titles two and three of the ADA never use the word accommodation. It's reasonable modification of policies, practices, whatever, to make their goods and services and programs accessible. The burden is on the entity. And I think we defeat ourselves when we talk about how the, you know, the, the concrete, it's very specific. It's reasonable modifications. That's how we have service animals. That's how we have all kinds of features of accessible features. Right. That's how you have effective communications. I mean, doctors' offices have to provide have to provide sign language interpreter services. They have to make if they have a patient portal that's inaccessible, they nonetheless have to provide um, all that communication in an effective manner to someone who's blind. And I think we just insist insist on it. 
It's called reasonable modifications. And well, it's there's another part. Communication. It's provision of auxiliary aids and services is the second right. part. And, and that's, that's where the interpreters. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and, but I think it's quite, and it often is way less expensive than putting yeah. in an elevator or a ramp. So sure. we shouldn't beat ourselves right off the bat. And we should just be insistent. But I agree, it's very discouraging now. I don't work at Justice Now. Currently, I'm at a different federal agency. But I can tell you, it is very discouraging right now. And we see that in all kinds of other contexts as well. But um, I think this is a, a great program. And I, for one, am very glad that the ADA was signed into law 30 years ago, because I don't know if it ever would be today. Yeah. No, absolutely not. I, yeah. I mean, the ADA. And, and I, think we've, I think we've all said that tonight, Sue. Yeah. 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 And so I think we've got to keep it up and we've got to keep pushing back and we've got to keep you know, demanding that we have equal access, equal access, equal opportunity, all those foundational principles mm-hmm. that are in the A, that those are. And we've got to vote too. Absolutely. You do have to vote. Yeah. But I think this is, is a great program, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, for, uh, Sue. Um, Claire, do, do, you think that, um, do you think that the ADA, as, as it stands now, um, is, is getting the attention it deserves from ACD? <laughs> There's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, nice guy. Wait right to the yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry to hear. Uh, so do you think that, rephrase, your, rephrase the question. Okay, so what I'm really asking is, is, is the ACB doing enough, do you think, um, to assure that its members know about the ADA and 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 are aware of their rights their responsibilities. Um, I mean, I'm sure we can always do more to educate. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a, an answer for anything in life, though, right? You can always do sure. more to educate. Um, but I, I, I guess to push that back on, like Chris's point that he's made, that we're all our own advocates, and so we have to to know what's going on too. So, does the burden fall on us? Does the burden fall on the people? Um, I definitely think we should be doing as much as we can to educate our members. But, you know, I guess that's a good question. (laughs) You you know, I raised the question because um, I ended up doing some training um, on the ADA for a group group of blind people at Uh at a lighthouse, which is Uh relatively close to here. Uh And I was amazed that virtually no one in the room, and there were maybe 20 people involved in the training, um, and, and no one in the room had a clue about mm. what the ADA was. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so that's why I'm raising the issue. I guess I'm just wondering if, if, if there are a lot of our members who, who really don't know enough about the ADA and maybe we should, maybe we should think about um, perhaps no, I, doing yeah. No, yeah. some more. You just did it, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, sure. I think that's yeah. a really good point because I've also seen – kind of on the flip side of that people think they know what the ADA is, but they don't. I get calls all the time in the national office and people say, the sky is falling. I'm blind. So I should have all the rights in the world under the ADA. And I have to take a deep breath and say, well, actually under the ADA, 
X, Y, and Z is not a right. So I think that's a really valid point because yeah, either people don't know about it or they make assumptions. Or they think they know about it. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Rick? My name is Chris Mai, but I'm from California. And I had this question for Claire, actually. Hope you're doing well, Claire, by the way. Good to hear you. Um, or or me even Chris. We grew up together. Yeah, Yeah, I'll go way back. Um, So with COVID-19, I'm just curious, what is ADA going to do with, with web accessibility since everything is now so much online and we have to stay at home? Is there any anything being in the talks about uh, anything to do with web accessibility or just, you know, because everything's going on the internet now mm-hmm. and, and, and things of that sort. Is there anything that's going to be in talks for web accessibility I, I think it's a good. I think it's a good question, Chris. Thank you. Um, Thank you. What do you think, Claire? Yeah, so I can answer that in a couple of different ways, Chris. First, um, Clark, my colleague, who I don't know if you've met Chris, but every most people know Clark. We op- we often joke that we use COVID as an opportunity because um, as horrible as COVID is, it has opened the door to things. So, for instance, absentee voting has really been spurred up because of COVID. So we're using COVID as an opportunity to increase our advocacy work. And so I'm using that as an example because I think web accessibility is the same thing. Like you said, schools now are going um, almost all virtual. My county here in Maryland, where I live, just announced that the first semester will be completely virtual learning for all students. Um, So um, again, I think COVID is an opportunity we can use to help push that we need accessibility under the ADA for different um, web programs. So I think that we can hopefully use it as a hook um, to help push forward that that argument. Now, of course, it's a it's a big fight and it's an ongoing fight. But I like to we we joke we make lemonade out of lemonade, so make uh, lemon lemonade out of lemon. So hopefully, we can use this as a hook to make that that point a little bit more. Um, but like we were saying before, um, you know, web accessibility is an ongoing thing, and it's a it's a hard hard fight to to argue. Chris, do you, do you want to add anything? Sure. I, I, I think if, if ACB had the resources, and I'm not sure ACB does have the resources, but uh, I would, uh, if you had the resources, I would sit down and look at all the states that are covered by that domino decision. Mm-hmm. And I would say, okay, in every single one of those states, we're going to litigate web access particularly for uh, entities that uh, have facilities uh, elsewhere in the country. Because, you know, web access, if you're going to fix it in California, you're going to be, it's going to be fixed in New York too. I mean, there's, there's only one right. way, you know, it's nationwide. So I would just, I would frankly sue the heck out of all these uh, Ninth Circuit-based uh, uh, entities. And, and I think that you'd make a big difference because I think they'd comply. Interesting. Yeah, Charlene Wills and Lori, you'll be up right after Charlene. <laughs> I, I had quite a lot, but I will just comment on this uh, latest little bit here because just this afternoon I w- attended a webinar um, that was offered by a disability rights group here in Oregon. It was an excellent uh, webinar. The man talked about assistive technology, and it was he he did a very fine job. He was showing slides, but he described them and everything. the uh, The uh, host of the of the webinar asked 
people uh, to stick around after the presentation and fill out a little uh, survey uh, as to how the the webinar was was for them and so on. So when he when he finished, the uh, lady came back on and said, "Okay, here is the poll. Now we want you to uh, take a couple minutes and answer these three questions." And she started reading the questions while my screen reader was trying very hard Aww. to tell me what to. I couldn't do a thing, mm-hmm. and she wouldn't leave the poll up you know, uh, later and uh, clicked off. And so now I could have just been frustrated and said, look, you know, they don't care. Okay. But I didn't. I went to the email and I emailed them promptly and said, you know, the webinar was wonderful. I couldn't answer the poll because you kept reading and and, and I couldn't hear any of the screen reader told me. They did respond to me, thanking me for my input, and they would do better next week on the next one. And and that's what we have to do. I get as frustrated, believe me, uh, doing things. And I'm not always nice. I'm a jerk, too, because I'll say <laughs> things well, very good. bluntly um, and not in the nice uh, way that people think we should uh, address others Uh, you know i have bad hair days like anybody else and (laughs) and, um, but we do have to keep on and keep at it and keep at it no matter how frustrated we get because otherwise we get nowhere i think the ada has done actually quite a bit of good but there's a heck of a lot more to go. And you have employers who, my, my uh, first wonderful employer, he hired me, had no problem with me doing his, being his secretary until the internet came along hmm. and I needed reasonable accommodation. I needed a screen reader, you know, and it was still in the early stages. And his answer was, I cannot uh, uh, do that because it's like someone who needs glasses asking me or asking the county to pay for their glasses. I'll never forget that argument he made. As it turned out, um, he also (laughs) steered me to a better job, a more lucrative job that I then held for a number of years. And I did get uh, accommodation, but Excellent. I had to keep fighting for it. And sometimes it's the little things like, oh, there's no braille numbers on the elevator. So you go put dymo tape on them, you know, or <laughs> I mean, you, you do little tiny things that don't cost a lot, but can make your life a whole lot easier. Thanks. Yep. Th- thank, thank you so much. Yep. Lauren uh, Sharp. Go ahead. Hey, Lauren. Yes. Hello. Hello. How are you? So I have to say I have found this interesting. It's been a trip down memory lane because my introduction to both um, the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA started with a conversation with Paul Schrader when he was governmental relations for ACB. A braille letter that was 25 pages providing me with legal citations um, of how to get my entrance exam to a community college in Braille. Um, So that is kind of what gave me the advocacy bug. But anyway, um, I, I really like the idea of doing trainings for members on the local, you know, and I'm specifically saying members of ACB on 
how to gather material for situations that may become litigation um, or, you know, how to file a complaint, things like that. Because people think, oh, well, I had a phone conversation. Well, do you have any notes on that phone conversation? Oh, do you know? No, I don't even know who I spoke to. You know, so it's very, you know, as you guys know, it's very important to build your case and get your ducks in a row. Um, And I just want to commend everybody for pointing out the, uh, I'm going to call it fraction or friction, kind of both, (laughs) that occurs within the disability community, um, because I've gotten myself in trouble. I've been told I live in a blind silo when I (laughs) like people with other disabilities. A comfortable spot, though. I always say I just grope the walls to find my way out. Um, You know, people in wheelchairs in the beginning would not advocate for detectable edge warnings, and I know Paul and probably Chris, you remember that. Yeah, I do. And, you know, my first ACB national convention was in San Francisco. When oh, ACB, that was a fun convention. When ACB picketed the Federal Transit Administration. Yes, we did. So, And, and it was fun, too. Yeah. I wish we'd do more of it. I, I yep. can, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Chris. And, uh, you know, it's it is critical. It it is critical. Yep. We're seeing some division occurring within New York City because they've put they've opened up they just added forty more streets in New York City that they've closed to traffic and opened as pedestrian uh ways mm-hmm. and they're putting in uh temporary ramps into the street for mm-hmm. wheels. So I, now as a blind person you have to walk out further into the street to get around these portable ramps. Right. Yep. It's interesting. Thanks, Lori. We appreciate yeah, thanks. it. Thanks for all your good work. Yeah, Denise Colley, please. Miss Denise. Hello, guys. Hey, Denise. Hi. I was, um, I managed a disability business technical assistance center. Oh, you did? Um, in the early days of the ADA. I was the manager for region region 10. Okay. And my three biggest frustrations at that time were number one, the whole issue around having to be able to prove that you were being discriminated against based on your disability. Mm -hmm. The fact that when you did file a complaint, nothing seemed to happen with it. And the whole issue um, around, um, I just forgot my third point. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but my question, I guess, is how do we um, how do we help our members? If for those of us who are the quote unquote um, advocacy um, key people in our particular state, how do we work with our members in helping them to um, you know to file to be willing to file the complaints and to be willing to step out because there is just still so much um, discouragement and so disheartened. And so they don't, Um, they call us, they have issues, but they don't want to do anything. mm -hmm. They say it doesn't work. Well, I I mean, I've in, in, in both the uh, 
Marin Council of Blind in Minnesota and, and here in the North Carolina Council of Blind, I, I have personally offered many times that I'll help anybody file a complaint. Um, and I've only had one person take me upon. Um, and uh, I did help them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I understand did, did people's they, reluctance. Did they ever hear results, Chris? Um, yeah, because we dealt with it, uh, locally. It was actually, it was a, it was a local, uh, city department in, in Raleigh that required, uh, somebody to be able to drive for a job that didn't require driving, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. uh, Claire, um, a- any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I guess just to turn it on, turn it a little bit, we in the national office are always willing to help file complaints and do advocacy, which, you know, is my daily job, but I would turn it and encourage affiliates to do that too, you know, find ways to empower your members and empower your leadership to help members within your own affiliates, because, you know, we only have so much manpower or women power in the national office. So yeah, I'm just encouraging, um, state affiliates and uh, chapters to, to get involved in that respect too, and be able to, to help each other do those kinds of things. But if there is a, um, I'm, I'm looking for the right word. If there is an assumption that our members make that filing a complaint doesn't do any good because you never hear anything, um, uh, is there anything we can do at the national level to to maybe gather a lot of these complaints and send them in as a group to the Department of Justice and say, look, here are 50 complaints that have been filed in the last month by, by blind folks who, who haven't received any response whatsoever. Well, see, I, I'd, respond, I'd respond to you to say, don't start at the Department of Justice. Start locally. Because that's where you're going to have potentially more of an impact. Sure. You know, if, 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 if you go your to complaint is local. Yep. Well, yeah, I, mean, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I mean, I've, I have had very few AD complaints that I've helped with locally that haven't been resolved. And, and right. so you're absolutely correct. Rick. Yes, sir. Michael Byington, please. Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Michael. Well, thank you, and good evening. I think I want to mention, first of all, that the first time I ever met Chris Bell was at the ADA, the ADA signing in 1990, mm-hmm. and I was introduced to Chris by another civil rights attorney who's now gone on to the great beyond, Charlie Hodge, who yep. <laughs> civil rights work with the Department of Labor for many years. Yep. And it's good to hear your voice again, Chris. I have... Mm-hmm. I have three points that I want to make and uh, certainly welcome comments on. First of all, uh, when we, when the gentleman was talking here a while back about the uh, issue of uh, the installation and maintenance of uh, equipment and so on, it caused me to recall an experience that I had uh, back when uh, uh, I was very fortunate to, have uh, worked for over 42 years with only a few months of unemployment in all that time. But I was in a uh, Department of uh, uh, Human Resources uh, job service center looking for a job. And uh, they said, oh, well, we can take care of the accommodations you need. We have this thing called JAWS on the uh, uh, computer. (laughs) Nobody knows how to use it, but 
it's there. Do you think you could maybe use that? Well, I was a window eyes user and uh, used those <laughs> stuff as well, but I got on and managed to get JAWS to, uh, I had to run a couple of updates first that they had paid for, but not ever loaded. But uh, eventually I got JAWS to give me the information I wanted. And as I looked around behind me, here were probably 25 people who had been in the job service center who had all gathered in a uh, half circle around the computer because they wanted <laughs> to watch this wondrous magic that was being done <laughs> in accommodation with the ADA. And I thought about how sad it was, but then I thought about the fact that back when I was the 504 coordinator for the city of Wichita prior to the ADA, I found many, many wheelchair ramps that were absolutely unusable because they were not maintained and there were big clumps of grass or something similar growing up into the middle of them or mud, you name it. And Mm -hmm. so I think the whole issue of maintenance of accommodations once they have been installed is a significant issue. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue whether you're talking about an orthopedic disability, uh, a hidden disability of some other kind of visual disability, or whatever. Second point I want to make is that uh, a lot of people still think of ACB as the organization that does not pick it because of a perhaps unfortunate resolution that was passed back during the days that NFB was out laying on tarmacs in front of airplanes. (laughs) I would like to remind all current members of ACB that are not this into ACB history that at the San Francisco convention, which was mentioned earlier, there were, uh, there was a resolution adopted undoing that resolution and saying that there are no impediments to ACB holding public demonstrations, i.e. picketing, if the situation seems to warrant that. And so I think that in some ways, ACB lets its history uh, keep it from doing things which we attempted to fix and which ACB can now legally do. And yeah. the last thing and, I want and, to say. And a, and a bunch of us picketed in San Francisco, too. Oh, yeah, they gave me the megaphone. I was there. You know, that's not a <laughs> I surprise, was too. Michael. <laughs> what a surprise. Now, the last thing I want to say is I've had a number of jobs and a number of volunteer positions with our state affiliate, et cetera where I have probably assisted more people than I can count in filing ADA complaints. The thing that amazes me is the, some of the ones that I filed that I thought, man, I am doing good work. I have documented things. Well, this person has a great case. They go into a black hole and I never hear Mm. anything from them. Mm. Others, however, that I filed, and I've actually got a pretty good record of getting them investigated, but ones that I thought were mediocre go all the way through the process. I had a day that I filed the ADA complaint on on behalf of a group of blind people that ended up doing $4 million worth of improvements to their programming and services and access because of the complaint that was was filed. So I would like to encourage people not to give up if you file a good complaint that doesn't get investigated. They don't all get investigated. But if Chris Bell can give me some idea as to uh, some formula 
determining what's going to get investigated and what does not, it will surprise me because <laughs> I'm convinced that it's a crapshoot. No, well, it's not. It's not a formula. It's it's get the name of the investigator and bug the investigator. And if that doesn't yeah. get your relief, bug the compliance manager. And if that doesn't get your relief, call the district director. Right. <laughs> Yep. The squeaky the squeaky wheel always gets the grease, no matter what area of life we're talking about. So become a squeaky wheel. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Marty, you're back. I like to leave. Yeah, I did not mean to um, turn off to disconnect myself like I did. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to talk about this: what to do next, and how we can do this with an ACB. Um, I currently am mentoring a gal who works for one of the federal agencies and they're not providing her her reasonable accommodation. And um, I think the key is mentor. Find some people through the advocacy committee that can serve as national mentors. And also the other issue that I find very complex and I think it's hard for our members to realize there's different laws. There's HUD, there's FHA, there's ADA, mm-hmm. and California throw yeah. in the CPDA and the UNRU Act. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's very important for our members to know the proper law in which to file their concerns and complaints. And then my final comment, going back to my earlier comments, Ashley, Lady Feingold and I talked about this, and we believe that the AT department never talks to the legal department is why we keep getting repeated um, POSs and stuff that aren't accessible after a case is settled and new technology comes out and they purchase it. And I think that's a pretty um, problematic situation yeah. that they don't talk to each other. Yeah. So I will be quiet now. Thank you. Margie, thank you. Uh, either of you want to comment, Claire? Yeah. Uh, well, Margie, just as a plug for the, um, the the mentor system, that's something that we're really hoping to get off the ground with the information referral and peer support steering committee at ACB, ERPS, as I affectionately call it. Um, so that's <laughs> an example of a peer support um offering we want to have is for things like employment and that kind of thing. So uh, if you want to sign up to be one of our mentors for our peer support program, I'll put your name down. Sign me up and put mine down. Perfect. Um, uh, Rick. Yeah. Phone number two, nine, nine, four, please. Oh, that's uh, me. This is uh, Meryl Schechter from Windsor, Maryland. Hi, Paul. And hi, Claire. Hey, Meryl. And uh, Chris, I have not had the pleasure of, meeting you yet but I, I will but um, I have three comments one is that Eric Bridges made a great remark comment at the convention he said all we're asking for is to have the same technology that a sighted person has mm-hmm. and I could not agree with that comment more the other thing is when I was working I'm retired but When I was working at Social Security, I had to fill out a 501 request for a piece of equipment that I needed to do my job better, and it worked. And plus, I knew how to do it, or I was trained how to do it, because I was an EEO counselor for Social Security. And the other comment I would like to say is that just like we had the paratransit forum, I mean the transportation forum this year, I think it would be a fantastic idea if we had an ADA forum for like four days for the next convention. Thank you. Put everybody to sleep. 
it's you're giving us time. more work to do. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. You're welcome, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick. Yes, Abraham, please. Hi, this is Abraham in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Abraham. I'm a local man. I'm in, yep, I'm in Pittsburgh. I think I met you once at Vision Insights. Yeah, I did. That's right. right. Yep. So I got two comments. First one is about the airlines industry, and the second one is about the Domino's lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the airline the- industry is not covered by the ADA, so we might want to dispense with that one. Okay. No, this was on the comment that blind people are our own worst enemies where mm-hmm. I've been on the plane with a lot of other blind people before the coronavirus for uh, a blind event. And everyone on the flight who was blind was requesting assistance. Once the airlines told them it's going to be about 20 or 30 minutes before we can get enough people, they all got up and walked out as though they didn't need help. So, <laughs> we give, so a lot of people are playing the blind card. And this is why I think within the airlines, I'm seeing a lot more pushback when I ask for help. So yeah. that's, so that's Fair my time. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to about, the next one. Cause we've got, got a bunch of people waiting okay. about Domino's members of ACB leadership that I've talked to. They were defending Domino's lawsuit because they said the ADA did not mention anything about web accessibility. And I kind of disagreed with them. So I wanted to know, Chris and Paul and Claire, what your opinion is on the Domino's lawsuit? We weren't defending Domino's. Hell no. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm not sure who you heard that from. (laughs) Oh, I was on a call with them and I know who they were. And they said, when I mentioned I'm not going to Domino's anymore, not only because they have crappy pizza because of the lawsuit, (laughs) they said they basically pushed back against me. And this was, and I was upset with that. And I just wanted to make sure I understood your take on it and oh no we're we're, we're really? all in favor of website accessibility yeah. and i was yeah. saying we should pursue that case you know throughout the country yeah. okay and, and, and but i think the real the real issue is um that what what the domino suit did was 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 to put another mark beside the notion that uh, the ADA and other laws uh, needed to regard web accessibility as 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 a crucial component, and and what we've been trying to do with ACB um, for well, really ever since the internet became real, um, has has been to make it clear that that all of us who are blind have as much right to be able to access everything on the internet as everybody else does and the only way to make that happen it seems is by continuing to file suits when 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 people are not doing a good job when they've been given lots of notice and and, and lots of information about how to do it of making their websites accessible mm-hmm. um, and that's particularly true against uh, public uh, lo- state and local governments there's a lot of inaccessible websites and that's, you know, that's, that's the government. That's, you know, if you want information and, 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 on, and there's no excuse under title, there's no, that's right. That's right. I mean, just none. And that's, you know, the bottom line is if you're trying to get something from your state or your County, um, you, you, you should be able to get it. And if you can't, you ought to be pushing really hard to make that change. Yeah. 
Claire, do you want to add anything or? Nope. I think that's, that's perfectly put. Yep. Yep. All right. Rick. Yeah, we, we've got Chris Ann. Yep. Yes. Does the ADA address any issues regarding senior housing, independent living facilities who choose to do all of their communications in print rather than having them available in accessible format, such as your lease, yeah. um, communications regarding activities in the building, situations in the building, et cetera, et cetera. No. Is it a private ADA or a does, public is it a well, private or a public entity? I mean is it a is it a county run facility or not? No. This is a, a Catholic facility. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so um, the ADA doesn't apply to housing at all. Um, there is a law that was passed in 1988 as an amendment to the Fair Housing Act, which does require disability non-discrimination. I have to go back and look at it to see if it goes down to the level of administrative stuff you're talking about. If there is um, any kind of federal financing uh, for a facility, and that might include tax defer bonds, I'm not sure, um, then you might have an argument. Um, but the ADA itself doesn't deal with housing. Rick? Debbie Grubb. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Can, can you hear me? Yep, we yep. can. Okay. I have a question, and I, I wish I could. it could have been more to the beginning, but I would like you very learned people to talk to us about basically what civil rights are, what they are not, and as recipients of civil rights, once they have been passed and regulated and that sort of thing, what our responsibilities are. Because, you know, we hear a lot about rights and nobody believes in them more than me. I'm right there with you on that page. But sometimes we don't talk about responsibilities. So could we go back and have like a little tiny few minutes of, of Civil Rights 101 with you guys? And I'll be quiet now. Thank you. Chris? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure... I understand your question. Um, there are uh, obligations that civil rights laws impose on businesses and employers. And, um, you know, for the most part, as a country, uh, we base our action on voluntary compliance. I'm not saying that always works. Certainly don't work if you're a black male and the police are killing you. All right. But I mean, when you think about filing taxes, uh, your taxes or, or obeying traffic rules, I mean, there's not a cop in every corner. All right. We, we do a lot of voluntary compliance. So then the issue is, um, you know, who's going to do something if, if there isn't compliance? And the reality is, I don't care whether you're talking about traffic enforcement uh, or civil rights laws or whatnot, that you, you're not going to be able to rely on the government to pay for uh, enough cops and enough investigators, et cetera, et cetera. So who else can it fall upon? Well, it falls upon those of us who have rights that aren't being met. And fair or not, that's the reality. And uh, so, so I if, think if you had to, in 30 seconds, Chris, give a definition of civil rights, what would you say? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, I, I would say uh, equal opportunity to participate 
and receive the same benefits or opportunities that other people have. Yep. And, and, what are, and, what are, and what are our responsibilities, our responsibilities, as well as our rights? What are our responsibilities in availing ourselves of these equal opportunities? What is in, and what is incumbent upon us as people who, who reach out to take advantage of these opportunities that have been so hard fought and won for us and by us? Claire, do you want to do that one? I mean, I think that kind of gets back to some discussion we've had pre- previously about how much should should or should not fall on the person um, to advocate for their rights. And I think we all agree that as people who speak up for our rights, you have the obligation to um, say what, what you need. Um, if someone abuses your right or denies you a right that you just need to speak up. Now, I think one thing we did discover in our conversations that we might all fall somewhere on different parts of the spectrum on how much advocacy we are or are not obligated to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, because you, it's a civil right when, when it's violated or your, your right is denied, you do have to speak up because unfortunately, if you don't speak up, nine out of not even nine out of 10 times, 99 out of a hundred times, no one else is going to speak up for you. So you do have that responsibility to speak up. But again, how much you are, you should have to be advocating for yourself. I think we might all fall somewhere slightly different on the spectrum of how much advocacy we think uh, needs to be done or not be done. But the, the other part of it is we have an obligation. I think, you know, if you want to apply for a job, and, and to be a computer programmer, then, you know, I think you have an obligation to get the training to be qualified for the job, unless it's on job training they're offering. I mean, there's no point in, in kind of thinking you're going to, you know, you're going to get this great job in computers, but you don't have any training or education. In it. I mean, we have to, we have to make ourselves ready uh, for the opportunities that we want to, uh, we want to accept. I, I appreciate that. You too, thank you very much for being our guests on Tuesday Topics. I think, I think this has been an enlightening discussion and you guys have added a tremendous amount to it. Um, Chris and Claire, thank you a lot. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Next week on Tuesday Topics, we're going to be talking about audio description with Brian Charlson and Carl Richardson. Please be sure to be here. We've enjoyed having you. Uh, Remember, laws get enforced as often by disorder as they do by order. Good night.